I don't know about you, but uh, I can guarantee you something over the last few days. If you have gone into a store over the last few days, if you went into the bank before the Thanksgiving holiday, you were watched. You were watched. As you walk into a bank, as you walk into a store with the surveillance cameras going on, if you drove past your neighbor who's got his new security system with his his uh, cameras aimed toward the street, you know, we can see who passes his driveway. Uh, if he's got those hooked up now after his Black Friday deal, you're being watched. You're being watched. Even to come into church, you're being watched. That's part of the world in which we live right now is that we're being watched. But more than just being watched as an unnamed face on a usually uneventful camera in the scene, there are people that are watching your life. You have friends, you have family, you have children, you have grandchildren. They're watching your life. And they're watching your life to see if if what you say about Jesus and how you live for Jesus line up. Because it's easy for us to talk about Jesus, and it's easy for us to talk about faith, but it's another thing when we have to live through the challenges of life. As Peter writes to the believers in 1 Peter, we are reminded he's writing to believers in the first century. And these believers in the first century are being persecuted for their faith. Rome goes up in flames about 64 AD, and Nero blames it on the Christians. The government is anti-Christian of this in this day because Christians weren't buying and shopping for idols that would benefit the Roman government and the taxes of that day. Christians were persecuted and the government was anti-Christian because they didn't go along with the immoral flow of society and stop by the temple where there were temple prostitutes. As believers, they were now sticking out in a world filled with idolatry and immorality and they were being watched to see and to check out whether their faith was genuine or not. And whether they were going to live in fear and shrink back when persecution came, or whether they were going to live to the glory of God no matter what the consequence. And as Peter comes to the final chapter, and we come to the final 14 verses of 1 Peter, Peter lays out a fresh challenge. He lays out a challenge for pastors. He lays out a challenge for all believers, and he lays out a challenge for friends that they all live to the glory of God. Take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to jump in in verse number 1. But if you have your Bible, we're going to be kind of perusing through the whole chapter, so keep it handy, but we'll pick up in verse number 1. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, 
not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those uh, entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then down in verse number 11, he says to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. With that, let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the challenge in it today. And may we live for your honor and glory. In your name, amen. Much like the first century, the 21st century has many who do not espouse to any faith and would condemn, ridicule, or persecute those who would hold to any other doctrine other than a uh, blatant humanism or at least a sense of materialism that the world would hold on to to say, we're here to get what we can form of hedonism to say we're here just for the pleasures we can gain and to live for Jesus and to live for a bigger purpose and to live and show our faith goes against the American dream. It goes against what many believe as the real pursuit of life. As Peter writes believers in the first century, he doesn't call believers to, to fall back and to give up amid the challenges and the persecution in the first century. Instead, he lays out some specific and distinct challenges. And first off, he lays these challenges out to the elders. These are the pastors. And in verse number one, he says, I write to you as a fellow elder, as an elder or a leader or a pastor in the church. And, and I have some things to say to you. Listen, I was there. I got to see the sufferings of Christ. I got to experience the miracles and watch what Jesus went through. And now I have a word, especially for the minister. So here, first off, he gives a word to ministers. And that first word is found in verse number two, shepherd the flock. He tells the pastors of this day, he tells these ministers, these elders, that their job, first and foremost, is to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now, the picture of a shepherd in the uh, first century was a very common scene. Obviously, just a few years before this, Jesus uh, was... Uh, born and at the birth of Jesus, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. So people understood what shepherds were and who, uh, where the shepherds were, were working and what they did and all those kinds of things. And now he says, look, you pastors, you leaders in the church, you're to live as shepherds. You're to love and to lead and care for and feed and protect your flock. That's what you're supposed to do. He says you're, you're to, to, to live in such a way that, that you show your concern for people that are under your leadership and your, uh, your guidance and your direction. And as you open the word of God, you need to be careful to feed. As you, uh, share the truth of God's word, you need to be careful to lead and protect and, and share and show your care and concern for others. He tells them that they are the shepherd, the flock of God. He not only tells them as they think about shepherding the the flock of God, but he challenges them to to set the right kind of example as they did that. As he talks about setting this example, he says, look, don't don't be serving uh, out of compulsion, out of this people forcing you to. Don't be lazy and and have people, people pushing you to work. Instead, why don't you just serve eagerly? 
Serve with a sense of passion. And don't do it for money, but do it willingly. And don't do it for gain, or not, and don't do it to lord over other people. And this is what he says. As a shepherd, as a pastor, your job is not to talk down to people. You're not like the big CEO boss who gets to talk down to everyone else. Do you realize that the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you? And that if you're fulfilling God's calling in your life, then you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do while I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. And I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. He's saying, look, don't come across like you're the church boss, know it all, and lord it over people like they are are ignorant and without the Holy Spirit. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to lead them willingly and eagerly and humbly. And don't do this out of a sense of what you can get out of it. Instead, out of a sense of your calling, shepherd the flock of God and set this kind of example for others that are, that are there. And then he tells them not only to, to shepherd the flock and set the example, but notice in verse number four. He tells us then when the chief shepherd appears that you will receive the crown of glory. The chief shepherd. He, he challenges ministers not only to shepherd and not only to set an example, but he challenges them to remember the return of Christ. When he talks about the chief shepherd coming, you know what he's talking about? Jesus is coming. He's saying, look, one day the chief shepherd, the lead shepherd is going to show up on the scene. And and to be honest with you, no matter if you're in full-time ministry or not, when the chief shepherd shows up, it won't make any difference in your life who you pleased if you displeased the chief shepherd. And it won't make any difference in your life who you displeased if you pleased the chief shepherd. So he challenges them at this point to say, look, no matter what's going on in life, I want you to shepherd and the lead in the fact that you're going to give an account to me and I'm showing up on the scene. As a chief shepherd, I'm showing up as the boss of all the pastor shepherds in the world. And when I show up, there will be rebuke or reward. And he says, I'm coming with the crown of glory. It's interesting here, the the picture of the chief shepherd. We know that in the Old Testament, the picture of God as shepherd is most famous in Psalm 23. But there are three distinct pictures of Jesus as a shepherd in the New Testament that are worth noting. The first is in John chapter 10 and verse number 11, where it says this, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, dies for the sheep. Then, over in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up uh, from the dead the Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, through the blood of the eternal covenant. So, So what is he saying? That Jesus is the one who died. I am the good shepherd and I give my life for the sheep. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 20, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up this one from the dead, Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus, the great shepherd. The shepherd lives. He lives. He lives for us and he lives in us and he lives to ever make intercession for us. So he is the the. Good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He is the great shepherd who 
lives for the sheep. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 4, he is the chief shepherd who is coming for the sheep. That's the picture of Jesus. Jesus, the perfect shepherd, is the one who died for us so that instead of facing the the torment of eternal punishment away from God forever, Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life. He's the good shepherd. He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of sin. He died on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God. He died on the cross so that we would have the opportunity to go to heaven forever. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. The Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, now equips us so that we can do the will of God. He is alive and one day he is coming. And we don't know when that day is going to be. But let me ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? This is the challenge to the elders. Don't forget. You don't forget. And don't forget to remind others. And he says that when the chief shepherd shows up, he may give a reward to those who have served faithfully. And I believe that there are a lot of rewards that will come. We do not get to heaven by doing anything good in our life. We don't get to heaven by good works. We don't get to heaven by good church attendance. We don't get to heaven by good uh, uh, giving. We don't get to heaven by good and kind deeds. We get to heaven one way. That's through trusting Jesus Christ alone as the only way of salvation. Trust, believe, faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. But... There are rewards in heaven for those who work for God's kingdom, for those who invest in God's work, for those who have an impact in the lives of others. He says, look, the crown is coming. You're already in a right relationship with me, and there are rewards coming if you'll work diligently and make an impact in the life of others. There's a word for ministers. Secondly, he not only shares a word for ministers, but he shares a word for all believers. Pick up with me in verse number five. First Peter chapter five and verse five. Likewise, you young, younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Here's a word for all believers. Stay humble. Stay humble. He says, first, you younger people be submissive to the older people. There's a reason for that. Older people have more experience. They, They have been through the life challenges and struggles. And he's saying, look, you need to understand and take to heart what they tell you. There are many older people in our church who have walked through some of the same fires that you're starting to walk through right now. And as they're walking through those fires and those challenges, can I tell you, you, you may need to meet some of them. You may need somebody that, that can help you and walk with you and pray with you and be with you. You, you can't be the know-it-all. You can't be the one who says, man, I, I've got this whole thing of life down. Stay humble. He says, not only are you to be submissive to elders, but be submissive to everybody. In other words, don't don't be a a, a proud, arrogant person. Instead, be willing to sacrifice to help others. And then he says this, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I, I love to watch sports. And over the last few days, 
There's been a lot of football on, and I have enjoyed a lot of football. Matter of fact, more football than I've enjoyed all season. I've watched over the last couple of days, uh, just eating and taking it easy for a little bit, chilling. So, but there's something in football called a stiff arm. When a, a runner has the ball and someone's trying to tackle him, if he can push back on his helmet, even push back on his face guard, then he can keep that guy far enough away that he can't tackle him. And here's what the Bible says, that God resists the proud. That God, if you are filled with pride and you think you can handle it all and you don't need God, then God's just going to say, well, fine, have it your way. I'm just going to give you the stiff arm. You think you can handle it? Then you handle it. But don't come back. Don't, don't come back with your proud, arrogant attitude because I resist the proud. But when we come to a point of saying, look, God, I need you, then he gives grace, mercy, kindness, help to those who call on him, to those who are humble. Stay humble. And he tells us to be clothed with humility at the end of verse 5. He then tells us that we are to humble ourselves before God. And then he tells us that when we humble ourselves before God, in due time, he will lift us up. It's not me and my pride saying, man, I'm going to walk up the ladder. It's me and my humility before God saying, God, I'm just going to live for you and trust you. And if there's a ladder for me to go up, it's got to be your ladder in your time. That's the picture. He not only says to stay humble in the sense of, of our pride, but notice with me in verse number seven. He says, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. We need to stay humble and dependent on God. I, I don't know about you, but if, if you've been kind of half paying attention, then, then look right up here for a minute because this really spoke to me this week more than anything else. When he says, casting all your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you, the picture of casting was a picture of throwing out a blanket over another animal. So you're casting, you're throwing your blanket. Some of you, you've been on a picnic and you try to, you know, swoosh the whole blanket out where it lays out for you. He's saying, take that blanket and lay it across another animal. Cast, cast that blanket on an animal so that you can get on it and ride. There's the picture. I can take my blanket full of sins and sorrows and hurts and heartaches and disappointments and frustrations. I can take all of the needs in my life, I can take all the hurts in my life. I can take the areas of my life where I, I'm blowing it. I can take everything. I can take the unknown. I can take my fears of the future. I can take all of it. And I take it on a blanket and I say, Lord, I'm lifting that blanket up and I'm casting it on you. Casting all your cares upon him. You can cast all of them. No matter what it is, facing a surgery, facing financial difficulty, walking through a difficult time in your marriage or with your children, the Bible says you can cast all of your cares upon him and he willingly and, and graciously takes them because he cares for us. Some of you today are wearing a pretty heavy blanket because you've got everything on your own back. I'm worried about this and I'm concerned about this and I've got this and I'm not meeting up here and I'm frustrated with this and I'm struggling with this and I'm weighing 
all of it and I'm wearing all of it. And instead, Peter says, look, be humble enough to say, Lord, I need you. And just take that blanket off and cast it on Jesus. Some of you are struggling with some big issues. And you need to just get to the point of saying, Lord, I'm humble enough to know that I need you. I don't know. That just spoke to me this week. Because there's a lot of areas that I can be frustrated in, disappointed with. Things don't work out the way I want. Things don't go the way I want in the time I want and how I want. People don't always act the way I want. It's all, all this me and this selfish and this I. And I think, oh, Lord, it can get so heavy. God, I just got to take it. And I got to lay it on you. Stay humble. The second thing he tells us, not only to stay humble, is to stay watchful. Notice with me in verse number eight. He says, be sober and be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Be watchful, be on guard. Listen to what he says here, that you have an adversary, the devil. The devil is real. He is not some caricature with, you know, little ears and a, and a forked tongue and a pitchfork in his hand. The picture is, is that the devil is real. And he is alive and he is moving about upon the whole earth and he is against you. He wants to bring you down. Matter of fact, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I don't know if you go to the zoo and you see the big cats or you watch National Geographic, but it's amazing how little cats, like your house cat, and big cats can act the same in a lot of ways. I mean, you watch them, they creep up. They are so quiet. They are so slow. They're moving, moving. They say that when a lion is ready for that final pounce where he has his enemy in a place where they can't get away out of intimidation and fear, he roars as he pounces seeking to whom he may, seeking whom he may take for his prey. And here the picture is this. You have a real enemy. And he wants to devour your life. And he wants to devour your marriage. And he wants to devour your family. And he wants to devour your extended family. Kids. Grandkids. He wants to devour your legacy. He's real. He wants to destroy everything in his path. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy your hope. He wants to destroy your future. He wants to destroy your example. He wants to destroy your integrity. He wants to destroy your character and reputation. He wants to bring uh, destruction between you and your children and between you and your spouse. He is here to devour. And listen, you better be aware. If the devil can get in and have an impact on your life and you think, oh, it was just secret, it was innocent. No, 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 no. He gets in and he starts and he tries to take over. Be aware. The Bible tells us that we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. The Bible tells us that we are not messing with just some force that's out there. But there, are, there is the devil and there are his demons. And they are very real and they are very powerful. They are stronger than you. Way stronger. And they know the Bible and they know the history of Jesus way more than we do. But notice what Peter says in verse number nine. Resist him 
steadfast in the faith. We don't resist him in our own power. We resist him in the faith. James puts it this way in James chapter 4 and verse number 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What's the first key in my spiritual battle? My, my spiritual challenge, I have to submit to God. I say, God, you're the boss. You're in control. I know greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. That Jesus in me is greater than the evil one. That God's strength in me is more powerful than the enemy's strength. And so as I face this battle, I don't rely on myself. I say, God, greater is he that's in me. I submit to you. And God, I stand And steadfast in the faith. That's the word right here. That's what I stand on. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4? Three times he came back as the devil tempted him and said, It is written. It is written. It is written. He went to God's word. Stay humble. Stay watchful. Then stay hopeful. Notice what he says down in verse number 10. He says this in verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a a, a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Be hopeful. He says, notice what it says in verse number 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. That means this. No matter what happens in your life, if you know Jesus Christ then God's going to hold on to you for all eternity. The God of grace, who's going to hold you for all eternity, for his glory. But, he says, while you're here on the earth, there are struggles. Notice with me in verse number 11. He says that by Jesus, or verse, the end of verse 10, after you have suffered a while, <laughs> heaven's going to be glorious and wonderful and without sin. But here... You're going to have to suffer a while. You're going to face hardships. You may suffer persecution. You may go through the sorrow of burying someone that you love. You may go through the sorrow of losing your job. You may go through the suffering of illness, facing cancer, chemo. You you may go through financial struggle. But he says that God's working for, in four ways as you go through this suffering. He's working to perfect you. Notice the end of verse number 10. The word perfect there means to make you mature. It's a word that pictures uh, mending nets. That God wants to mend you up so that you're complete and whole and you're mature so you can do what he wants you to. Then he says, and establish you. That means to fix you firmly. Then he says that God may strengthen you. That through the time of challenge and trial that you could experience God's strength. And then that God may settle you. Let's take a minute and just think about that. What does it mean for God to settle us? He says, look, heaven's coming. Eternal glory. How wonderful. But for a little while you may have to suffer. But during the time of suffering, understand... I'm using this to mature you and to fix you firmly. I'm using this to show my strength in your life, and I'm using this to settle you so that like a foundation that's being dug out, so that it is firmly placed on solid ground and on the rock, that your faith will be rock solid. Why is it that we have to go through challenges in life? 
Why is it that we have to go through struggles in life? Why is it that we face suffering in life? Because God wants our faith to be rock solid, firm, trusting him. And no matter what kind of wind blows, what kind of storm we face, we know that our life is not going to crash, fall away, and be gone forever. He has a word for ministers. He has a word for all believers. That as believers were to stay humble and to stay watchful and to stay hopeful. Then he closes and he has a word for friends. A word for friends. Notice with me, pick up in verse number 12. He says this in verse number 12. As you're thinking about this, he's closing the letter out. By Silvanus, our faithful brothers, I considered him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Peter gives the final challenges to to these believers, his friends. And the first is this. Look at the end of verse number 12. The true grace of God in which you stand. Stand in grace. Stand in grace. Stand in God's grace. Stand rooted in God's word and God's truth and God's love and God's goodness to you. If challenging things happen in your life, it's not because God's unkind, unfair, and he's mean, ugly, nasty. That's not the picture. Stand firm in grace that as you face suffering, you'll know that God's already shown his love and grace to us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. So stand in grace. Stand in it. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18 tells us that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is something that we stand in and this is something that we're growing in. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 1 says that we're to be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul writes to Timothy. We're to be strong in this. Not only are we to stand in grace, but we are secondly to show love. We're to show your love. Show your love to others. And now notice this. He says in verse number 13, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. All right? High schoolers notice verse number 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. All right, there you go. Okay. So what we find is in the Middle Eastern culture, when you would greet someone, we shake hands today. We give a hug today. They would kiss each other on the cheek in that day, okay? That was just a joke there, parents, on your high schoolers, okay? Greet each other with a kiss of love. This was not a romantic thing. It was an accepting thing. It was a sign of welcome, a sign of acceptance, a sign of my friendship, that you're one of the people that I dearly care for in my life. As believers, this is how we should live. We should show love and acceptance to one another. Can I tell you, none of us are perfect. We're all broken. We all got lots of broken areas in our life. And he says, greet each other anyway. You got areas where, you know, man, if anybody else knew about that, they'd know. We're all broken. And we're to love each other anyway. It's not to be dependent on what you can do, what you can bring, what you can give. He just says, I want you to show love to each other. Isn't this what Jesus said in John chapter 13? as he's in the upper room with his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And he says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. It's not going to be that you're well known because you're intellectual and you can argue the scripture. 
It's not going to be that people are going to know you're a believer because you go to church a lot. He says, no, the real picture is, is they're going to know that something's different in your life because of the love that you share for one another. And then notice that last verse, the very last verse of verse number 14 of, of 1 Peter. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that brings us to the place of experiencing Christ's peace. Experience his peace. He wants to give us peace. He holds us like a shepherd. He guides us like a shepherd. He leads us like a shepherd so that we'll have peace. Do you know how this book started, 1 Peter? It's been a long time since we started it. But he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3 that because Jesus is alive, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. And now notice how the book closes then. It opens and says, you've got hope. And it closes and says, stand in grace. Show your love. Experience Christ's peace. So we get these words, hope, grace, love. Peace. I think that's a pretty good way to close out 2019 over these next few weeks. To live in hope, to live in love, to live in grace, to live in peace. Matter of fact, I think that's a great way to start out 2020. To live in hope and love and grace and peace. It's a great way to live our... And as a matter of fact, you're going to face a trial before the end of the year. If not by the end of the year, next year for sure. And you know what happens when you squeeze a ketchup bottle? You go pick up that Heinz ketchup off the shelf and and you open it up and you give that thing a squeeze. You expect ketchup to come out. You go buy that French's mustard and and you get that little yellow, yellow bottle and you squeeze it over your hot dog. What do you expect to come out? On the outside, it says French's mustard. It's in a yellow container. You expect mustard to come out. What happens when the squeeze is put on us as believers? Does hope? Does grace? Does love? Does peace come out? Does Jesus show himself as we face the pressure and the struggle and the squeeze on our life. I pray he does.